sometimes you really have to wonder about the Bible, don't you? I mean, you get to Genesis chapter 22 here, and you have to ask, who is this God of the Bible? After all, what, what kind of God asks a person to sacrifice their child? And if that part of the story wasn't disturbing enough, why in the world doesn't Abraham push back? Did you notice that? He doesn't argue with God like he did back in Genesis 19 when God told Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed. You remember that story, right? That was just a few chapters ago. Abraham was there bargaining with the divine presence to save the people of that town. But not here, not now. God says it, and Abraham, he just gets up the next morning and gets ready to go, no questions asked. It's almost like he's going on a vacation, maybe a camping trip, but a little special bonding between dad and son. Abraham starts chopping some wood, he loads it up on his donkey, and off they go. What in the world is going on with this story? Well, Rob Bell points out that a little background on the history of religion can be really insightful. Remember, religious consciousness was something that developed with human consciousness and developed with civilization, and it changed and grew over time. And if you go way, way back, you'll find that the early humans gradually came to this realization that their survival was dependent on things like food and water, and for food to grow, it actually needs sun and water in certain proportions. Too much water and things washed away. Too little water and the plants die. Same thing goes with the sun, right? Too much and it all scorches, too little sun, and their food won't grow. And those basic observations led to this new conclusion that they must be dependent on some unseen forces that they cannot control for their own survival. And honestly, that realization was a huge step forward in awareness and in human consciousness. But along with that, gradually there were these beliefs that developed that these forces, these unseen forces, are either on your side or they are not on your side. And that is why your crops grow or they don't grow. It's why you're able to have kids or you're not able to have kids or why your animals stay healthy but your neighbor's animals do not. So what can you do about it? Well, you can try your best to keep these forces on your side. So next time you have a harvest, you take a portion of it and you offer it on an altar as a sign to these mysterious forces to stay on the good side of these gods or goddesses or divine beings or whatever they are. But then imagine what happened when people would offer a sacrifice and yet it still didn't rain and the sun still didn't shine or their animals still got diseases or they were still unable to have children. Well, there's only one conclusion that you could come to. They didn't offer enough. Their sacrifices were not good enough. Think back to that early story of Cain and Abel, those two sons of Adam and Eve. You remember how Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God, but Cain's was not? 
Well, why was that? Who knows? <laughs> the Bible actually doesn't even say. It just gives witness to this experience. Sometimes your sacrifices are enough and they please God. And sometimes they are not. This was the early human experience. And so if the gods didn't seem happy after your last, last sacrifice, the only thing to do is to offer more and more and more. You see, from the very beginning, religious consciousness had something built into it that we call anxiety. Because you never actually really knew where you stood with the gods. The gods are angry or maybe they're demanding, but if you don't please them, they will punish you and calamity will come. But on the other hand, let's, let's say things went really well with you. What if it did rain in the right amount? And what if it appeared that the gods were pleased with you and it, you are better off than your neighbors? Well, you better offer them thanks, right? I mean, don't get too uppity here. But how would you know if you'd ever offered them enough gratitude? How would you know if your sacrifices were enough? In other words, if things went well, you never knew for sure if you'd been grateful enough and offered enough. And if things didn't go well, clearly you hadn't done enough. But either way, there is this anxiety in the relationship to the divine, right? So when things are going well and when they're not, the only thing you could do was to offer more sacrifice more, give more, because you never really can be sure where you stand with these gods. So last year you offered them part of your crop, but this year maybe it should be a goat, and next year it's going to be a cow, and the year after that, well, you better give two cows and maybe throw on a few birds for a little good measure. You see, the very nature of the way that religious consciousness developed it made everything escalate because your anxiety about not knowing where you stand with God and your anxiety about pleasing these unseen forces made you always not sure if you had done enough. You always needed to do more. And what is the most valuable thing that you could offer the gods to show them how serious you are about earning their favor? Well, a child, of course. And this is how child sacrifice develops in ancient religious systems across the globe and across human history. And it's why child sacrifice even lurks on the edges of the Old Testament. Because this is how it worked for people. So when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham's not really shocked. He gets it. He knew this might come along. It's part of the script when you start bargaining with God. And by this time, Abraham had made some bargains. And so Abraham doesn't argue. He doesn't ask questions. He actually knows what he's supposed to do here because it wasn't unheard of for him. And so the next morning, he starts. He loads up his donkey with firewood. He takes two servants and his son Isaac and they set out for the mountain of sacrifice. And they walk together for three days, the scripture says. And that number, I think, should catch your attention. For three days, Isaac 
this promised son was as good as dead. Three days in the tomb, remember? The Bible can be pretty poetic at times. And after that third day, they get to the base of the mountain, and Abraham actually says the strangest thing to his servants. Stay here, he tells them, while my son and I go up to worship on the mountain, and then we will come back to you, verse 5. It's like Abraham knows what he's supposed to do, but he also knows this God is full of surprises. And so the story already is a little confusing here. It's like the story is subverting itself, how it's supposed to go. Something else might be going on here, or at least we wonder if it is, but then they go up onto the mountain and Abraham pins Isaac down and ties him up and raises a knife, ready to do what he has to do when suddenly God stops him. And then God offers them a ram instead. End of story. Everything's fine, right? (laughs) No, everything would not be fine if that's how the story ended. But there's actually more here than even what we read. You see, it's actually right there in that moment after God offers them the ram that God begins to tell Abraham the very same thing that God had been repeatedly telling Abraham for decades by this point. It's the same thing that we first heard God say to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that God will bless Abraham and all the peoples, all the nations of the world will be blessed through him and through his offspring. Which of course brings us back to the question we have at the beginning of Genesis 22. What kind of God would ask a person to sacrifice their child? And now we have the answer. Not this God. Some other forces in your life may ask it of you. They might demand it of you, but not this God. In other words, despite what you have been led to believe, this is not what God is like. So why the drama here, right? I mean, why this story? Why even start the story with the voice of God telling Abraham, to sacrifice his son. Well, the Bible, you have to remember, is full of these stories that are taking huge leaps forward in that religious consciousness we talked about a moment ago. So the audience would have expected a very different ending here, but here we get a story of something they know there's what's supposed to happen, And in this story, God is teaching Abraham and God is teaching them and really God is teaching all of us that we may just still have the wrong idea about the very heart of God. It's like God's trying to show us that that sometimes what you think you know about me couldn't be farther from the truth. I am not the petty demanding God that you still imagine me to be at times. I am not one you have to bargain with or one you have to appease. I am the God who provides. I am the God who blesses. Not only that, but remember, this was a moment of worship. Abraham said, we're going to go up on the mountain and worship. And worship was always thought of something that we do for God. We worship 
to appease and to sacrifice to God, to give honor to God. But here God is even turning the whole worship thing upside down on its head because suddenly in the middle of this worship moment, this sacrifice moment, God is the one who is giving to appease our own sense of right and wrong. God gives a ram to Abraham so Abraham can have some sense of still being in right relationship with God. So in this story, rather than us trying to change God's mind, God is the one trying to change our minds, trying to open our hearts to God. Now, now this is a really ancient story, right? But how often do we still not get this? We still, at times, act as if we have to change God's heart and mind about us because we're really not quite enough. When all along, it has been always our hearts and our minds that need changing about God It's like what I said about the cross this past Lent. Jesus did not come to die on the cross to change God's mind and heart about what to do with us. It's actually the other way around. The cross is the deepest expression of God's self-giving love for for us. It's Jesus' attempt to change our hearts and minds about God. Something similar is happening here in this story with another son that's about to be sacrificed. God is the one meeting us and trying to open us up to the profound goodness of God's heart towards us. So God is providing for us now. And God's really just getting started. It's what I've been trying to tell you all along, Abraham, God says to him. I will bless you and your offspring, and you will be this blessing to all the peoples of the earth. No sacrifice required. Just trust me. Just believe. Just open your heart to the divine goodness of my heart coming to you. So when you look at this story, can you see just how radical And how compelling it is and how it actually represents a huge leap forward in our consciousness of God's heart and why it would be saved as sacred text for us. And so before we leave this story today, there are actually two things that I want to invite you to remember. First, the Bible is not what so many of us have been led to believe that it is. You cannot just pick up a single story and assume that this one story tells you exactly what the heart of God is, even when the writer puts down on the page, God spoke and said, fill in the blank. Because the scriptures are not actually a flat experience of God. They are a developing awareness of the divine heart. They're not a static text where we can put in any one story or one chapter right alongside any other story and assume that they're equally revealing to us the heart of God. That's just not how the scriptures work. No, they are this 
sacred texts of dynamic, unfolding collection of stories and poems and letters that all together are gradually discovering more and more of the surprising goodness of God. And in that struggle and in that process, they wrestle with one another. They contradict one another and push against. And sometimes those stories represent these huge leaps forwards in awareness of God. And sometimes they are taking a few steps backwards. That's why Rene Girard calls the Bible this text in travail, in this deep struggle, but a struggle that's giving birth to something. So what seems true in Genesis 22 verse 2 It's clearly not true about God by the time we get to verse 14 and 15. It's one of these stories where there's a huge leap forward happening, even though it's still a very early story. This is just Genesis. Remember, we've got a long ways to go. So again, Rob Bell uh, explains it this way. When you read the Bible in its context, you learn that it is a library of radically progressive books calling humanity forward from where they are into a better future. It's also why I I keep coming back to this image of the Bible is, is not primarily a window through which we can peer and see the heart of God in any moment. Jesus is our window. Remember that the scriptures themselves say that Jesus is the clearest revelation of God that we have. Jesus is the window through which we peer and can most clearly see the heart of God. But the Bible as a whole is not Jesus. The Bible actually acts more like a mirror reflecting back to us our own developing awareness of God, our own story of struggling to know and to understand God. So in the Bible, we start to recognize ourselves. We we see ourselves. We see that just like in the Bible, sometimes we have these moments of awareness where, where our relationship to God takes a huge leap forward, and sometimes we take steps backwards. That's what coming to know God is like, and it's part of what the Bible is trying to teach us. And that's the first thing I want to invite you to remember from this story today. It also brings me to the second thing that I want to invite you to know. Sometimes... You and I are still an awful lot like Abraham. Something in us is still not quite convinced of the profound goodness of God's heart towards us. Something in you is still not convinced of the goodness of God's heart towards you, of God's deep desire to bless you and to make you, to make you a blessing to the world around you. But remember, I mean, by this point, Abraham had experienced some of God's goodness and Abraham had already finally received the promised son. And sometimes you and I, we have these seasons where we learn to trust God and experience God's goodness in us, but there is still something that is unsure, that thinks we are not good enough. And so there is something that still keeps God just at an arm's distance. And in the process, we miss so much of what God desires for us. 
the joy, the meaningful work, the redeemed relationships. We miss the gifts of this one beautiful and mysterious life we've been given. The truth is sometimes we keep God at an arm's distance because we're still afraid we're going to wake up one day and find God asking us to sacrifice the very thing that brings us the deepest joy or to sacrifice the deepest desires of our heart. But Genesis 22 is here to remind us that we may just have it all wrong. It's a mirror, remember. The truth is God's desire is love and blessing for you and for the world around you. And hopefully it's not going to take another three-day journey into death for that to sink in deeper for us. So on this day, open your heart. Trust again the very heart of God for you. And become the blessing to the world that God has created you to be. Amen.